Great, great worship this morning. So excited to be able to be here with you. How are you today? Fantastic. Fantastic, fantastic. So have you met this lady or seen her post uh, this last couple weeks on uh, Facebook? If you haven't, then you're probably one of the few people in the world who has not seen this, other than, of course, my mom and dad, who have no idea how to turn on Facebook. But this lady's uh, shot a video. Over 150 million people have viewed it. Unbelievable. In case you were one of those crazy people who, who haven't seen it. She goes into Kohl's. She buys this Chewbacca mask. She's so excited about it. She goes out to her car. She turns on her video camera, and she begins to record a post of her trying on this mask that she is so excited about. So she puts it on, and she actually gives her long explanation, and she just begins to giggle. She's just tickled at, herself, at, at this purchase that she's made. She's so excited, and she just laughs and laughs and laughs. And the more that she laughs, the more joy she seems to find, the more you as a viewer, all of a sudden, you're in, driving down the road in your car, and all of a sudden, you're laughing. Well, no, you're not, because you're on the phone in your car. I'll take that back. <laughs> you're, you're sitting at home, you know, watching this on, on your phone, and you're starting to laugh with her. And the more she laughs, the more you laugh. And the more she laughs, the more you laugh. And then you start sharing it with other people. And there's 150 million people who've done it. It's just gone absolutely crazy. It crushed uh, Facebook's viewer stats, being the most viewed uh, video ever put on Facebook by a long shot. Just crazy. And the shocking thing is how simple it was. And yet it just kind of resonated with people. And it got shared over and over and over until ultimately it really redefined what it means for a video to go viral. Candace Payne is the lady's name. And when she posted it on her Facebook account, she just meant for it to go to just her few friends that she had. And she had no idea that unsuspectingly she would touch a nerve with people and make herself an overnight household name. Absolutely crazy. There's something about something that catches us by surprise. Something that we just didn't uh, see coming. And, uh, and it just shocks us. Um, a number of years ago, you may remember a story about an Amish community that, who had experienced tragedy. About a year after that tragedy had taken place, NPR did a, a story on it. I'd like to read it to you. It's been a week for quiet reflection in the Amish communities around Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, which one year ago experienced tragedy. It was in this tiny community that a man stormed into a one-room schoolhouse and shot ten young girls, killing five. And then he killed himself. Charles Roberts wasn't Amish, but Amish families knew him as the milk truck driver who made deliveries into their little community. Last month it was announced that the Amish community had donated money to the killer's widow and her three young children. It was one more gesture of forgiveness, gestures that began soon after the shooting. Donald Crabill, a sociologist at nearby Elizabethtown College, and co-author of the book, Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. He wrote this, I think the most powerful demonstration of the depth of Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's burial service at the cemetery, Crable writes. Several families, Amish families, who had buried their own daughters just the day before, were in attendance. And they hugged the widow. And they hugged the other members of the killer's family. 
People all over the world tuned in to see that story. Shocking. There's something remarkable about things that come into our world unexpectedly. It shocks us. It intrigues us. It makes us need to take a a second or maybe even a, a third look which all stands to reason because if it was every day, all day, ho-hum, then it wouldn't be shocking or intriguing to us at all. It would just be normal. Well, today we're continuing in our series on the anything but normal life of the Apostle Paul. Chances are, if you've had a chance to read the New Testament or study it throughout your life, and you have read words that are breathed by the Holy Spirit, but potentially written, most likely written, by the hand of Paul because he wrote so much of the New Testament. He was a man of God. Many people who study him and have, uh, again, read the Scriptures throughout their lives would say that they believe the Apostle Paul might possibly be one of the greatest Christians who have ever walked this earth. And yet Paul himself wrote of himself as the chief of all sinners. Charles Wendell, in his biography of Paul's life, Uh, wrote, began uh, his book with these words. Each time we engage in a serious study of a great life, we need to brace ourselves for surprises. Interestingly, the greater the life, the more shocking the surprises. And this was certainly true, not only of Paul's life, but the situations and encounters that seem uh, to, that he seemed to have in the detailed description that we have of his life in the scriptures. One of these stories comes from the book of Acts. And I'd love for you to turn there with me in your Bibles or in your devices. And it'll be on the screen for us as well. Acts chapter 16. And this story is, can I just tell you? This story is amazing. It's amazing. And the more you look at it, the stranger and more intriguing it becomes. Paul is traveling with several of his traveling companions, which included Luke, who is narrating this part of the book of Acts. He's with, of course, his often missionary buddy, Silas, and then he is with Timothy. They've come to this place called Philippi. It's a Roman province. It's right on the edge of of Europe as the gospel is moving its way into Europe. And here we're going to read about three very unexpected encounters that Paul has in this chapter. So let's begin with verse 13. And I want you to meet Lydia, Lydia the seeker. Unexpected person number one, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened up her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Here's what we know about Lydia. Lydia's well off. She's done well for herself in the ancient world of fashion. She's a seller of rare goods. It's the seller of purple clothing. She deals with expensive items. She is from Thyatira which is a massive port city in the ancient world, and she's now living in Philippi. To understand the dynamics of these two cities, think like L.A. and New York City or Hong Kong, cities that would shape the economic force of the world are Thyatira and Philippi. She's doing well. 
And here's what's so unexpected about Lydia. That even though she's wealthy, she's an insider. She's both grown up and now living in, totally, in a totally pagan society. But she has stepped outside of that norm. And she has rejected Roman paganism. Even though she's from Asia, she thinks that these Jews have figured something out. Now listen, there isn't even enough Jews in this little group of people who have met, first of all, it says that they're all women. It takes at least 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. And there's not even that. And Lydia's drawn to them. She believes that they've figured something out. The last place you would expect to find Lydia is in a place like this. And a place like this would be with people like these. But she is. And she believes in her heart and her mind that there's more there. She hears Paul speak about Jesus. And the Bible says that Lydia's eyes are opened. Her heart is opened. And she listens to Paul. And she is baptized. The next person I want us to meet is nothing like Lydia. And yet her story is even more bizarre. And once again, totally unexpected. Let me show you what I mean. Meet the needy slave girl. Acts chapter 16. Unexpected person number two. Verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, which means she had a demon. She was demon-possessed. And they brought to her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now listen closely. She followed Paul and us, crying out, listen to this, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Wait a minute. This is the demon speaking. I mean, what? What is going on? Listen to what he says. Quote, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Listen, this isn't a Christian demon. This isn't a friendly demon. This is a demon. And it's advertising Paul and Silas's ministry and message loud and clear. And not just once. Look at verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul became greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So what's really going on here? Well, there's a girl. She's a slave. And she has a demon. She's following Paul and Silas around for days. And the demon is, keeps uh, uh, over and over getting everyone to listen to Paul and Silas. He's telling them that they're telling them the way of salvation. And then Paul gets annoyed at all of it and casts the demon out. It's, it's really kind of bizarre. To say it's not normal might be an understatement. But listen, can I tell you what's going on? This girl is possessed. At some point in her life, she's gotten involved in things that have left her open to demonic uh, possession. She's likely lived a hard life so different from Lydia. Somehow and in some way, a demon has taken over her body. And so for several days, she follows Paul and Silas around with this demon using her to speak. And let me tell you what's happening with the demon. 
This demon is not agreeing with Paul and Silas. It isn't supporting or advertising Paul's message. It's making fun of it. It's ridiculing it. It's mocking it. Paul doesn't want to draw any attention to it or give it space. But at some point, he's just had enough. He points to it. He tells it to come out of her. And it does. There's a lot of speculation. I've read a ton of things about it over the last couple of weeks about what might have happened to this young slave girl after this. But I believe, as many others, that she became a follower of Christ. I believe she was following Paul around, taking in the message of hope. And once the demon was gone, she became a member of the small group of unlikely followers that Paul was reaching there in Philippi. So far we have Lydia and we have this slave girl. But as for this little girl, being freed from her demon, not everybody was thrilled about it. In fact, her owners are angry, they're furious. Let's read about that, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, so concerned about the the young girl, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Remember Lydia? The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fasten their feet in the stocks. So I want you to meet our, fir- our third person who is so unexpected, the angry Philippian jailer. Can I tell you something about this guy? He's most likely a former military. He's likely served in the Roman army and as a faithful soldier, he's been retired to a life of keeping this jail as part of his retirement. He's blue collar, he's tough, he's crusty, He's seen all kinds of terrible things that's made him numb to, to, to brutality. Brutality is a way of life for him. All he is told is just to keep them safely. But he goes way beyond that. He didn't wash their wounds. He didn't bandage them up. He puts them in the inner part of the jail. And in the inner part of these jails, it was a little bit lower than the other cells around the outside. So all the human waste would flow down to these inner cells. It was nasty. It was dank. It was cramped. And it was gross. He fastened their feet and hands into the stocks. These stocks were brutal. They were a form of of torture. They would spread out your arms and your legs beyond uh, their point of normal motion. And your muscles would begin to cramp up without relief. And it was unrelenting. Terrible, horrific pain. And it was unnecessarily cruel. And here's the thing. He wasn't asked to do it. So why did he? I think most likely he just wanted to make a statement. The magistrates obviously didn't like Paul and Silas. They gave them no opportunity to explain or to vend themselves. They just had him beaten and thrown into prison with this man. And so he's just piling on. So there's three people who have crossed Paul's path so far since he's arrived in Philippi. 
each one of them very unusual. Certainly not what you would expect. Lydia, seeking God even in the midst of a totally pagan, totally without Christ, Roman province of Philippi. Then there's this little slave girl following Jesus around, ridiculing Paul and Silas, only not in her heart. She was desperate. She was needy. And then there's this guy. He's tough. He's hard. He's not seeking, and he's not needy. In fact, he's indifferent to the whole thing. He's hostile, and he's uninterested. You can see how it might have been easy to talk to somebody like Lydia. She was seeking the gospel message that Paul was so committed to. You can see how it might have been easy once she was delivered to talk to uh, this little slave girl. All the things that they would have to talk about. But not this guy. This guy's different. He doesn't want or need what Paul's bringing to town. In fact, he's glad to make an example out of the whole team. It would take something much different to reach this guy with the good news. That Jesus had come to save sinners that were just like him. And listen... This is where the story gets great. This is where the abnormal gets completely reversed. Paul and Silas are going to show him something that he has never seen before. Up until now, the abnormal has been seen in the people that Paul has encountered. But now the tables are going to get all flipped around, and this man's life is going to get changed right in front of us. He's going to see things in Paul and Silas that are so beyond understanding, so beyond expectation, and he's going to think in his mind and heart that this, this is just not normal. This is not normal. There are two things I think that stunned the jailer, stunned him. Two things that were so abnormal, so intriguing, so unusual that they would make a man like him Listen intently and want what guys like these had in their heart. The first thing is that in the face of suffering, he sees peace and joy. In the face of suffering, horrible suffering, he sees peace and joy. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul crawled out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're still here. Can I tell you what's going on here? After Paul and Silas had been dragged to the center square, falsely accused with no trial and no opportunity for a defense, they're beaten with birch rods. And every time it says that they're beaten with rods in the scripture, here's what's going on. They take small, thin birch rods and they bind them together. And binding them together is like plywood. It makes it it a whole lot stronger and and a whole lot more stiff. And they're beating Paul and Silas with these things. And these rods were so strong and and so stiff that they would open up a man's flesh like it was a loaf of bread. After that, they're dragged into the innermost part of the prison and they're shackled and tortured without light or even any decent air to breathe. So what did they do? They sang and they prayed. They worshiped. They worshiped. 
And you know what I find fascinating? The Bible says that the prisoners were all listening to them. And I want you to remember, it's midnight. It's dark. It's pitch dark, pitch black darkness in that cell. But the prisoners were listening. In fact, the Greek word for listening is a rare word meaning riveted or amazed. They were amazed, deeply intrigued. Let me tell you why. In Middle Eastern culture, especially in ancient times, it was common to express what you felt outwardly. And so if you were angry, you would scream. If you were sad or in grief, you would wail. If you were happy, you would sing. You would clap your hands and you would, you would uh, dance. And it was all this beautiful thing. So when these prisoners heard these guys singing and worshiping, it makes sense that they were listening, riveted, amazed. They should be wailing. They should be crying. They should be shouting curses and threats of retaliation. But instead, they're singing. And listen, don't you think for a minute, don't you think for a minute that this jailer didn't pick up on all of that. What those prisoners saw was that in the face of incredible suffering, there was peace and joy. Then the Bible says that God sent an earthquake. It shook the prison, releasing the prison doors and the shackles on their feet. The jailer runs in, sees that the doors were open. The men were free from their shackles. And he did what every good soldier would do. He reaches down and pulls out his sword. Only it's not a long sword like you might think about. It was more like a, a short dagger. And without question, this dagger had been used many times to take the life of an unruly prisoner. But in this moment, it's about to take the life of the jailer. Military men were men of honor and a shame and honor culture. Allowing prisoners to escape was punishable by death. So rather than allow somebody else, another man, to take his life, he would take his own life until he was told not to. Paul calls with a loud voice, wait, hold on, don't take your life. We're all still here. It's pitch black in that prison. And he hears somebody say, wait, hang on, we're still here. He hears the words, but he doesn't know where it's coming from or who's saying. Look at verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out, and guess what he said? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Will you read that with me, everybody? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Read it one more time. Sirs. What must I do to be saved? This jailer thought that he had seen everything. He had seen the worst of people. He had seen the ugliest of wars. He had seen people die and he had seen people spared. He had undoubtedly experienced an earthquake or two, but he had never seen what he was going to see in these two men. And it made him think, this is just not normal. First he saw in them men who were suffering yet were full of peace and even joy. And now he saw a second thing, that in the face of persecution, he saw forgiveness and mercy. 
This man knows how he uh, treated them. He knows that uh, he knows that they could have walked out at any moment. They could have remained silent and just let him take his own life. They could have had their moment of redemption. He had treated them so mercilessly, so brutally. They had no trial. They had no guilt. They had no wrongdoing. And they were shown no mercy. In the midst of the greatest suffering at the hand of his persecution, they were forgiving and showing mercy. And that's just not normal. They had saved his life. He had disregarded theirs. And he knew that they knew that they had saved his life. And he fell down before them, trembling. And he asks them, what must I do to be saved? Look at what they said in verse 31. And they said, believe. Just believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up out of his house and set before them food. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed. I wonder if in that moment, Paul and Silas thought about the 23rd Psalm. Thou hast prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, and my cup overflows. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Have you ever wondered how Paul could do the things that he did? How could he find such peace and joy in the midst of such suffering? How could he be so forgiving and merciful in the midst of such persecution. His life, his faith was so contagious. It was so intriguing. What we've been learning throughout this series, this simple truth, that Paul never let what he was experiencing, what he was experiencing change what he believed. Paul never let what he was experiencing alter what he believed. Paul believed that God never changes. He believed that God is good. God is merciful. He's faithful. He's loving. He's caring. He's gracious. He's kind. He believed that in the end, God was trustworthy, that he was righteous and just. He believed all things work together for those who love God and those who are loved by God. He believed that if God was merciful in good times, that he was merciful in tough times. If he was faithful and loving and gracious in seasons of plenty, then he was also that in seasons of drought. Just because his circumstances changed from day to day, even hour to hour, that never meant in his mind that God had changed. Paul's belief in God's goodness and wisdom, his sovereignty and his justice was just as true in the midst of his worst persecution as it was in his moments of exaltation, Paul genuinely believed that God was good. He's a good, good father, and he was loved by him. It's why he could write to his little church that he had begun in Corinth with 100% certainty 
We may be afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. To despair. Per, uh, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul believed that turmoil, difficulty, persecution, hardship were not essential indicators of being outside of the will of God, but rather it means usually that you are right in the center of his will. We have learned from Paul throughout this series that if your circumstances, they may or may not change, but if you believe God, that he is always who he says he is, then while things around you may not change, you will. And the people in your life And and to the people in your life, your contentment, despite your circumstances, will be nothing more than heroic. People will look at you um, uh, the way that they looked at Paul and simply believe that even though they may may never tell you, what they see in you just isn't the ugly that they're used to. Paul also believed that Christianity isn't just for people who need Christianity. Paul believed that, that, that the gospel of faith isn't just for people who need Christianity to somehow straighten them out. He believed when he encountered people that if the good news works for anyone, then it has to work for everyone that he came in contact with. If it works for you, then it would have to work for me because it's true. And if it's true, it would have to be true for everyone. That's what Paul believed. Just look at the people for a moment in this chapter that we've met so far that Paul ministered to. Lydia was a socialite. She was upper class. The possessed girl was a slave, the epitome of lower class. The jailer was a blue-collar worker from, uh, from the jail. He was middle class. Lydia was Asian from, uh, from Thyatira. The slave girl was Greek from Philippi. The jailer was Roman. One was spiritually open, one was spiritually hostile, and one was spiritually indifferent. One was anxious, one was needy, and one was angry. One of the many uh, messages from Paul's experience on this first trip to Philippi is that the gospel, listen, the gospel is for everyone. So there may be somebody in your life who is just waiting, they're seeking And they're waiting for you to share the hope that's within you. There may be somebody that you cross paths with that are broken and possessed under the weight of their sin. And they need your hope. They need your word of hope and healing. And there may be somebody in your life that seems hostile, angry, with no interest in your gospel. But they may be watching you, waiting to see if what you say you believe is what you really believe. And as you worship God in every way in your life and cover them in prayer, listen, God may be preparing a miracle. Another truth that drove Paul to be who he was is that Paul knew that the gospel unites. It doesn't divide. Another surprise for critics of our faith is that the gospel message that we believe does not divide people, but instead unites people. There are three people here. They're totally different with literally nothing in common. And the Bible said that after their conversion, they all met in Lydia's house to have encouragement 
and fellowship. One of the many things that, that I have learned about being in a small group here at Westridge is that I can have all kinds of things in common through our faith with people I would otherwise feel little or no connection with at all. In our group, we have people in their 30s, in their young 30s, in their 40s, couples in their 50s, and couples in their 60s. We have different hobbies and different interests. There are people in our group who have young children. There are people in our group who have no children. And there are people in our group who have grandchildren. Some people were raised in the north. Some of us were raised in the south. There's one couple who was raised in Nigeria. One thing that Paul believed is that the gospel unites. It doesn't divide. The one thing we have in common in our group is that when we gather together to enjoy uh, genuine community, to grow together spiritually, and to seek to make a difference in the lives around us, is that God is uniting us. Christianity doesn't divide. It unites. There's, if there's one thing um, we see that separated Paul uh, from others that we are so accustomed to, it was this. It was this one thing. Paul lived every day for the joy of what he would achieve someday. Paul lived, listen, every day for he believed in his heart he would achieve uh, someday. Paul cherished the complete freedom he had to live in such a way, listen, to choose to do now what would make him happy and content a thousand years from now. Paul believed to be fully free We must have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to do what will make us happy forever. And that's the freedom that Christ gave to him on that Damascus road. Paul's final letter was written to one of the men who was experiencing everything that we've read together today in Acts chapter 16. He was Timothy, Paul's young apprentice, sitting in the jail cell that would be his last then known as the Mamertine Prison, he wrote this second and final letter to his young disciple. Paul knew that time was precious. It's why he wrote this to Timothy in the final chapter of that final letter that he would ever write. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not just to me, but to you too. Sometime after that letter was written, historians tell us that Paul met his final fate that was in the end his greatest triumph. In his book that I referenced earlier, Chuck Swindoll road of the final hours of Paul's life. And I couldn't say it nearly as eloquently as he wrote it, so I'd like to read it to you. His earthly end came swiftly and abruptly. Alone and without fear, Paul stared directly into the eyes of the execution squad. Several held rods with which they would beat him. One held the sharp axe with, um, with which he would sever the apostle's head from his shoulders. Few words were spoken. They marched him through the heavy gate and beyond the stone wall that surrounded Rome. 
past the pyramid of Cestius, which still stands today on the way to the Ostian way toward the sea. Crowds journeying to Rome knew by the rods and the axe that an execution would soon transpire. They had seen such sights before. They passed it off with a shrug. It had happened yesterday. It'll happen tomorrow. The manacled prisoner, walking stiffly, ragged, and filthy from the dungeon, was not ashamed or degraded. The squad of grim-faced soldiers never noticed as they frowned and stared ahead, but there was a faint smile on the prisoner's face. He was en route to a triumph. The crowning day of his reward. For him to live was Christ and to die gain. No axe across the back of his neck would rob him of his triumphant destiny. It would, in fact, initiate it. They marched Paul to the third milestone on the Ostian Way, to a little pine wood in a glade, a glade of the tombs known as the Fontaine. At that place today, there stands an abbey in Paul's honor. He is believed to have been put in an overnight uh, tiny jail near the place of his execution. At first light on the next dawn, the soldiers took Paul to a stump-like pillar. The executioner stood ready, stark naked, axe in hand. The men stripped Paul, tied him, kneeling upright to the pillar, which exposed his back and neck. The lictors beat him with rods for the last time. He groaned and bled from his nose and mouth. And then, without a hint of hesitation, the executioner frowned as he swung the blade that gleamed in the morning high, the morning sun high above his head and then brought it down swiftly, hitting its mark with a dull thud. And the head of the Apostle Paul rolled down into the dust. In that brutal moment, silently and invisibly, the soul of the great apostle, the man of grit and grace, was immediately set free. His spirit soared into the heavens. Absent from the body, he was at last at home with the Lord. There's one thing I think that stands out about the, Paul, the life of Paul is that he believed God is who he said he was. And because of that, he lived every day for the joy of what he would achieve someday. What he cared most about was not today, the suffering, the persecution. What he cared about was what would make him content, what would make him happy a thousand years from now. That's what drove his life. That's what made him so unique. That's what makes him so contagious to us. The beautiful thing, we can have the same thing. We can live in the same way, for the same glory, for the same purpose. We serve the same God. We are indwelled by the same Spirit. What Paul had, we can have. What Paul did, we can do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had to open your word. It's been powerful to us this morning. I wonder, Father, in, in our congregation today, if there are those who are asking this question, having heard about the life, the intriguing life of the Apostle Paul.
and they're asking in their heart, they're asking you, Father, what must I do to be saved? Remind them, Father, of what we've learned in the Scripture today. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will be saved. Father, also I'm sure that there are those of us who have gotten so entangled in the worries of this world and the things of this time and in this place that the, the appeal of our lives, God, is minimal. Our focus has gotten off and we're just wandering. So Father, I pray that maybe today seeing Paul's ministry, experiencing Paul's life would draw us back into intimacy and fellowship and power with you. We love you. We thank you for the privilege we've had to open up your word and to study it together as your, as your family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.